Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I love it when we get to hear from producers. They, it's just so fun to go down their whole resume. And this week we get to hear from another legend. It is Michael Beinhorn. Now, Michael's been in the music industry for like 40 years. He started when he was really young. He's done a little bit of everything, and we try to cover as much ground on here as we can. But the man produced like landmark, genre-defining, decade-defining music or albums of the last like 35, 40 years. Listen to some of these. Red Hot Chili Peppers' Mother's Milk, okay? Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union, the one with Runaway Train on it. Soundgarden's Super Unknown, which just turned 25 years old last week. That's why you're hearing Fell on Black Days. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. I love this song. There's also Mechanical Animals from Marilyn Manson. There's uh, Whole Celebrity Skin. But get this, in the early 80s, he's with a band called Material that is sort of this post-punk funk group in New York. That leads to, did you know that Michael produced and co-wrote Rocket by Herbie Hancock? Do you remember that song? Do you remember how crazy that video was? That was like the coolest thing anyone had ever seen in the early 80s. That's Michael. That is crazy. That From there, he goes on to do some production work with people like Nona Hendrix, Red Hot Chili Peppers. We also talk about albums he's worked on in here with the Violent Femmes, with uh, Ozzy. We talk about Ozzy in here. Social Distortion, The Verve Pipe. Um, there are other songs or off one-offs that he's done with people like The Cult or Brian Eno or Living Color or even Ethan Hawke makes an appearance in here. Now these days he's in sort of the next phase of his career. He's not really the producer anymore. He's doing pre and post production work. It's like con consulting. And he, he worked on the brand new Weezer album, the Black album, that also just came out a couple of weeks ago. So we talk about that in there, in here too, this, this new kind of career shift for him. We also hear a lot about Chris Cornell and his thoughts and opinions and feelings about Chris as a person and uh, versus his, you know, his suicide, unfortunately. He tells us how he had to fire Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, Aussie stories. I mean, th we it, there's so much in here. You know what's really interesting, though? I would say most of the producers we've had on here have had very sort of demonstrative, big personalities. Michael's not like that. He's a mellow, softer-spoken, gentlemanly-type guy. It's crazy. He's very, he picks his words very carefully in here. It's really interesting. Anyway, I am so grateful that I got to talk to him. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. The guy is behind so much great music. I think you'll agree. He called me from his home in LA. Your career is so diverse. I would love to start from the very beginning, but in your case, I feel like we have to talk a little bit about Weezer first. You're on the new <laughs> Weezer. You worked with the, on the new Weezer album called The Black Album. It just came out the other day. But apparently, from what I'm gathering, your career is... You're not necessarily a record producer anymore. You're like a pre-production person and a post-production person. Tell us what you um, did. Well, uh, my involvement on that project was just, as you said, I mean, it's essentially helping an artist build, work on foundational aspects of their music. Um, and that's 
that's what I worked on with uh, with Rivers on that on that project. It was it's mainly dealing with foundational stuff. The post production part of it, um, it, that that happened when he brought he he brought me songs to listen to that were, I guess, in some state of completion, hmm. and they and he needed input on them. So you know that's that's what that's all that's what it's all about. I mean, it's it's very it's actually really simple. There's not a lot to it. I'm yeah. I'm addressing all, all aspects of of production that don't necessarily involve going into a recording studio and actually doing the physical recording. Right. Is that by choice? I mean, you sound almost like a consultant at this point. Yes. Okay. At this point that at this point I would say that's pretty much exactly what it is. Okay. Um and yeah, it, it is by choice. Uh, and the choice is made because I'm feeling that a lot of people really are overlooking these aspects of making a record, that there's just kind of a, there's a, there's almost like a flying by the seat of your pants type at, uh, vibe about the way people are, are making records in some cases these days. Mm-hmm. And I have always felt that it's very important to get a a strong foundation to recording i feel that that's those are aspects that are being overlooked and i wanted to make sure that that people who have means or people who don't have means have the access to be able to take a step back and really consider what they're doing before they actually before they either act on it or finalize the recording Mm -hmm. and then realize that they can't get back to it i'm finding that people are not only our audiences less enamored by records that people are making these days. But I feel that the artists are also getting really concerned about the situation themselves. That they're not really enjoying the quality of the work that they're doing or they get to, they, they're forced to rush. So, you know, with, without any, mm-hmm. without it, without a chance to really take a, to, to take the step back and look at what they're doing. And I really think it's important that they, that they have that opportunity. You know, so that's really what I'm trying to provide, giving people a perspective on their own music while they're working on it. So they can really see what's working and but more importantly, what isn't working. Right. Do you find this at this stage in your career more fulfilling than being behind the boards? To a, to a large degree, yeah, I okay. do. It's easy for me to just kind of say, all right, I'm going to produce a record and just go into a recording studio and, and, and kind of do all the things that I've done for so long. And, you know, and, you know, actually it, I I do feel to a certain extent, like it's because it's starting to become kind of a something, making a record's almost becoming systematized for Mm -hmm. me in a way. And I I just, Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I've never liked about, uh, about any kind of art form or expression Mm -hmm. or even work that you do. Like it's nice when it can always be different, when it can be changed up. Mm-hmm. And I feel that doing this gives me a very unique opportunity to really, you know, to, to actually to really focus my my talents on one aspect mm-hmm. of the recording process specifically, and and really and because every project is going to be drastically different, mm-hmm. it's a it, it's really fascinating. It's a perspective that I've never had before, even though I've done this kind of work many times in the yeah. past. Huh. So from a business perspective, like let's say Weezer goes back to their label. I don't remember what label they're on anymore. Warner Brothers? I'm not sure. Anyway. Atlantic. Atlantic. Okay. So they go back to Atlantic and, um, you know, budgets for big albums aren't there anymore. They, 
Weezer's going to get a bigger budget than some indie band is, but it's still not a ton. So are they building into the cost of making this record? Well, we want so-and-so to produce it, but we want Michael Beinhorn to consult. And uh, we, you know, we need, Michael Beinhorn has a, has a fee and we're going to pay him for his, you know, instruction. Is that kind of how this works? Or are you friends with Rivers and doing him a solid? How does this come about? Uh, this is, it, it's, it's business. Okay. That's what I figured. <laughs> it's okay. business. So yeah. So it has to be, it has to be included into a recording budget. Okay. Okay. Wow. Now are you, um, how do you, did, did someone tell Rivers to come talk to you or did you guys know each other? Did he seek you out? His manager used to be my manager. Okay. Um, so we have, we have a mutual friend there and he, he heard about what I was doing and he felt that it would really be helpful for rivers. Mm -hmm. You always hear about how, um, I don't know what even the right, how regimented, I guess rivers is when he comes to, when it comes to songwriting, he's got, you know, multiple spreadsheets with all these algorithms in them and not to use the word baby too often or to what happens if we use baby more often, or, you know, all the, these different examples of, you know, rules he creates for himself when he writes songs. Did you find that to be true? Um, we didn't really interact on that level. I think oh. he really wanted my input um, regarding song structure. There wasn't a lot of back and forth about it, at least as to the extent where I would actually kind of go into his process mm -hmm. per se. Okay. I basically gave him my unvarnished perspectives on the music that he'd written and, you know, let the chips fall where they may, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a kind of situation where here's what I think, you know, here are here are solutions to issues that I'm finding and you may do with my suggestions as you see fit. Right. Okay. Can you give us an example of one of the songs on the new album that you helped uh, shape or consulted on? Is it the <laughs> first track? Blur at this the point. first track, I think, is called "Don't Knock the Hustle," which struck me because this podcast is called "The Hustle." Did you work on that? No, actually, I got involved with him after that song was finished. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, was I mean, was this? Have you been doing this for a while, or is this? Is he your most high-profile client? Are you going to continue to do this? How is this going to work? To date, I would say that he's probably the most high-profile. But you have to remember that the process that I'm incorporating, or that I'm that I'm that I'm using with these artists is the same exact process that I've been using for decades doing pre-production mm -hmm. on other, other artists pro projects. 
So it's really, you know, from that perspective, it's kind of like a, a tried and true system. It's sure. just something that works and it's given me the best possible results. And I, I would say the artists that I've worked with over time. So I, I feel very confident with it. And yes, it is something that I am continuing to, uh, to work with and will continue to do so because I, again, to me, this isn't just about the business per se. It's mm -hmm. about, it, <laughs> for lack of a better term, a higher calling. Mm -hmm. I feel that this is something that is very, very, very important and very much lacking mm -hmm. from the records that people make today. And I feel that someone needs to make it available. And, and since no one else seems to really want to, I guess the job falls on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, uh, that's a really interesting perspective. And I don't know that I've ever... I mean, there are people like uh, Rick Rubin. Well, I, you know, most producers that when they are hired to take on a job, come step in and give their opinions and stuff like that. But this, you're talking about before all that or separate from the producer actually doing the work. I'll come in and kind of consult with you on where I think you're going or what you should be doing. Do you have any desire to get back behind the boards? Uh, I do when, when and if the right projects come along. But it's... Again, I feel like there's so much music out there in the world, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and I don't feel like I need to add to the cacophony at this point. Well, like so. I would, I would rather be in a position where I'm able to help guide people mm -hmm. in the right way, so that they're able to do the best possible work that they need to do with whomever they wind up producing their, their record. Okay, it's as simple as that. Good. Wow. Uh, wow, that's fascinating. I've never heard anyone go down this road before, but good for you. Um, yeah, I, I, no one else seems to have. Yeah. Here you, there you go. You cornered the market. <laughs> it's perfect. I, I've cornered the market. It's an interesting market. It's I, I don't see it as like a get-rich-quick type situation no. because, you know, basically what I've taken on is the entire heavy lifting portion yeah. of the recording because the – the, the nuts and the bolts, dealing with songs on the granular level, even the interpersonal aspects of the band itself, those are things that they they require a lot of brain power. They require a tremendous amount of effort. It's not the same, and I, I'm not attempting to say that going into a studio to record a project isn't a whole lot of work, but this stuff is really serious, yeah. and you have to dig in. It's not just a matter of putting some mics up and you know compressing your two mix. This is, you know, getting into the quality of the songs, the mm -hmm. nature of the songs, and basically putting that to the artist. What's your intent? What are you trying to yeah. do with this stuff? You know, and getting them to take an actual, not just, not even a, not even a thought-based process, but an intuitive, mm -hmm. an intuitive perspective on the work that they're doing. Because in a lot of cases, artists actually know where the issues are. It's just difficult for them to get to quite get a beat on it because by by nature, by virtue of what who they are in relation to what they've created, they can't help but be subjective. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, true. my job is to bring objectivity to them and help fill in the, the blanks that they can't see. Yeah, good point. Okay. Well, best of luck. That's a fascinating career path at this stage in the game. Thank you. Yeah, I yeah. like this. And who wouldn't want Michael Be I mean, any rock band would want Michael Beinhorn's thoughts and opinions on what they're doing, I would think, given your track record, you know? You're very kind. Well, it's true. Um, now, uh, let's go back to the beginning here. Um, you worked on Rocket by Herbie Hancock.
I'm 45. That song and that video, I was a young, impressionable kid seeing something I'd never seen before or heard something I'd never heard before. That video and the song, to a lot, to a big degree, are still as revolutionary as they've ever been. How does the guy who produces Corn also produce Herbie Hancock back in the beginning of their career? Uh, well, it, it it comes down to the fact that I was never looking at music based on genre. I was mm. looking at the at the projects that I did, and I still I, I still like to take to adopt this attitude from the perspective of how they make me feel. Mm. I guess at the height of when I was working on tons and tons of of very successful rock records, I, I like to take a contrarian perspective. Mm. Um, like, you know, I don't consider myself a rock producer or I, I, or I don't consider myself a rock fan, which makes me, which puts me in a better position to produce a rock record because I'm not going to be fawning to the mm. artist. I'm not going to be someone who's going to, you know, like to, to be in a state of like adulating this person, but rather trying to create a, a, a really powerful and unvarnished um, emotional statement from them. Mm -hmm. Something that's truly expressive and hopefully truly them. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what did you... So I, I have to assume that Herbie Hancock found you because of your work with material. First of all, I just loved that late 70s, early 80s, um, funky post-punk bands like Material and Liquid Liquid and mm -hmm. the incredible okay. Bongo Band to some degree. You know what I mean? Those white mm -hmm. guys that were getting there, getting in there doing this totally funky new wave stuff was so good. Did he hear that and like it and think, I want this guy to come work with me as I go into this completely new direction? Well, at that point in time, um, Herbie was kind of at the end of his deal with Sony Music, and uh, I don't think that at that I don't think that he really felt like he had anything to lose. Uh, maybe, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, he'd kind of done the jazz funk route. He'd done the the R and B pop route. Um, you know, I mean, he'd worked with guys like Rod Temperton, and mm -hmm. and and you know, unfortunately, Rod. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who was an amazing songwriter, but I think he got like all all of his B level songs. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, because he was because he was Herbie Hancock. He yeah. wasn't Michael Jackson. Right. Um, 
you know, who's obviously going to get all the A stuff. Yeah. I mean, great writers, they also don't, they, they don't have, they don't have all good days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. sometimes they'll, they'll turn out something that's kind of medium, um, which Rod Temperton didn't do very often. No, of he course. didn't, but I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, Herbie got turned on to us by, um, a guy working with him named Tony Milan, who's sadly deceased now. But, mm-hmm. um, I think, he the tony basically filled herbie's head with this idea that we could give him something Hmm. that we were doing something very unique and revolutionary and you know what how could it how could it hurt to try it out herbie of course yeah being in the position that he's in well he didn't even know what he was going to get he had Hmm. no idea what this was going to be herbie being in the position that he was in said okay we'll try two songs and you know, so we had to build these tracks up from nowhere, and of course, the the one of the the very first song we worked on happened to be Rocket. Goodness, wow! <laughs> yeah, so so he you know he gets that, you know we finish it, and from there he was like, okay, I think we should we'll do the rest of the record with these guys. Nice, <laughs> you know, and uh, so give me an idea of what what did you create? What have we heard a million times in Rocket that is thanks to you? specifically um well to start with the drum beat um one thing that's interesting about that song and that became a signature aspect of the song is my inability to program the drum machine um it gave me kind of a um i i was attempting to program drum fills and Mm -hmm. um you know, usually when you play a drum fill, it's going to be in inside the the bar line. You know, inside mm-hmm. at the end of an even a, an odd bar or mm-hmm. an even bar. You know, to sort of end like a an eight or a sixteen bar phrase, I suppose. And for some reason, I couldn't get my head around the idea of programming a, a drum fill inside a bar, and I didn't understand the drum machine well enough. So I programmed all these drum fills that kind of happened once the bar was done, and they became these breaks. Mm. <laughs> wow. Which I'm, you know, I mean, how the song starts, did it, did it, did it, did it, That's, you know, which would have normally, all of the drum fills like those, they would have normally happened inside of a bar line with a drum beat already already taking place. But because of my inability, the song winds up having a series of breaks, which wind up being really good dynamic releases in the song. And once, you know, once we listened back to it, we were like, Oh no, that works. We're going to uh-huh. keep it like that. It was so. It's very funny. All those drum fills are sort of like not randomly done. I mean, I I I I wrote those, but like they, the first one is was actually meant to be a complete and because I was I'm kind of spastic, clumsy. It wound up being you know, oh, and, and that's what makes the song. <laughs> yeah, and so it becomes a signature part instead of being this sort of regimented thing, which I I was initially planning on it to be. But again, it was a case of we hear it back and we go, no, that's great. We're going to leave it. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there things like that. Um, when Bill started playing his bass line, he actually started it on a funny beat. I don't remember how, because it's based on a, it actually is, is a vocal um, melody that comes from an old Pharaoh Sanders record. Mm. Um, 
And I think he started it on, in the middle of the phrase and or, or the, what I would say was the middle of the phrase. And it just sounded wrong every time he, he played it. So I said to him, why don't you put the bass in, in like this? Boom, but it did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, you know, and he did that. That sounded right to all of us. So that was the bass part. Um, you know, um, there's a lot of little sounds and odd noises. There's, uh, there's, it's interesting because a lot of the programming that I did before we got to Herbie's was, um, at, was atmospheric type stuff, but I wound up programming all the synths for Herbie Mm. and, um, and the melody, of course, which is a result of yeah. myself, Bill, and Herbie standing around in front of his studio for about 15 minutes humming it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so your life yeah. must have changed drastically. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but at that point, I mean, you're, I don't know if struggling musician is the right word, but Material is a great band that's not setting the world on fire necessarily. You're probably making a living. But now suddenly you've got the hottest song with the hottest video, like in the on the planet. How does how does your life change? Uh, we weren't making a living, and um, <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. It was uh, it was a, it was a it, it was kind of a quantum leap. Yeah. Um, to tell you the truth, all of a sudden I went from being some guy <laughs> yeah. who was trying to scrape his rent together to being to seeing my name at the top of the Rolling Stones you know, critics poll for, you know, producer of the year. Uh, And I was like, what is going on? Crazy. How did you Uh, celebrate? How did your, I mean, from a a literal perspective, did you, I imagine, I mean, did you go buy a new car? Did you uh, (laughs) buy your girlfriend something nice? Did you take your family (laughs) on a vacation? Did you order the better bottle of champagne? What'd you do? That's really funny. I just never thought about it like that. I mean, unfortunately, I was very young. Mm. So any money that I made got spent pretty quickly. I didn't buy cars. But also a lot of the money that the song made was um, absconded with by our by our publisher at the time. Mm. So we didn't actually get to see a lot of that. Um, But I, I think I was kind of more like a deer in the headlights than anything else. And you know, plus there was a lot of um, interband issues uh, uh-huh. between myself and and uh, the guy I was working with, Bill Laswell. Uh-huh. Um, so that whole situation, it, it's interesting. The success of that song was really kind of at the beginning of the end for us. Yeah, um, you know, so I wound up having to kind of start all over again, so to speak. Okay. Um, but it was a the, that record and that song. It was. It was all they were really terrific catalysts for me to be able to get my career going, mm-hmm. um, even though it kind of started out in a very, I, I guess, a, a very uh, <laughs> not not very a very rough and boisterous mm-hmm. kind of fashion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> so uh, okay, so if I go down your resume here, um, there's a lot of stuff and. A lot of it, like, I'm not an expert on the Golden Palominos or Nona Hendrix. I have to say, I do really love the Parachute Club song, At the Feet of the Moon. And I mentioned no that kidding. because, oh, I love that song.
so there's a lot of stuff on your resume that's, uh, you know, nothing's quite hitting the same level as Rocket. But then in 87, you start an association with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, producing the Uplift yeah. MoFo Party Plan. And then, of course, um, Mother's Milk, the, the big one. So one thing I was noticing as I'm going over your career, you seem to be the guy that band, indie or small, and I know Ozzy's not indie, but when a, a certain mm -hmm. level of a rock band wants to take it up a notch or take it to a, a, like the more commercial level, they hire you. And I talked to Bob Rock on here a couple of months ago, and, he, and I know sort of a similar pattern with him. You know, when Metallica or Bon Jovi or Loverboy or Motley Crue wants to go to the next level, they hire Bob Rock. Were you in sort of a similar situation? We're the guy who's gonna, I'm the guy who's gonna take you to the next level? Bob is a wonderful producer, by he the sure way. Is. I do have to say that. He's yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think over time I, I became that kind of person. Um, I didn't necessarily position myself in that way, but, uh, I, I feel that I do have an ability to be able to lock into the essence of a band mm. and also kind of formulate based on the material that I'm given to work with a vision, an overall vision for what their recording is going to turn out to be like. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I can't really describe or, um, you know, explain in words. It's just sort of like a mental image. Mm that uh, I guess over the course of the recording kind of like modifies itself over time based on, you know, how things change, how things, um, uh, you know, transmute in the creative process. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think maybe it's, maybe it's the fact that I'm very tenacious about mm -hmm. that and kind of stick to it. And um, I, I'm, I'm just sort of driven by, I, I like to feel a, a, a degree, a tremendous degree of excellence, yeah. uh, and expecting that as a listener from the artists that I work with, um, uh, I want their excellence and their genius to come across on the most mm -hmm. elemental mm -hmm. and emotional expressive level possible. So there's absolutely no doubt to the person who listens to their recording or our recording, what everyone on the project is trying to say. Nice. Good. Well said. Okay. So let's dive into Mother Milk, Mother's Milk for a, a minute here because um, unfortunately, as most people know, after MoFo Party Plan, Hillel dies of a heroin overdose. Jack leaves, the drummer. And um, here comes, they come back to you with the album that breaks them through, basically, with a couple new players. You know, John Frusciante is there. Chad Smith is there. What is the dynamic of the band like? I mean, are you, as a producer, are you also putting your, you know, therapist hat on and kind of like <laughs> loving these guys and like, look, we can, we can make it, it's going to be okay? Or what part do you play? Well, the thing is, is that I, my, my relationship with them didn't end um, between the Uplift record and Mother's Milk. Uh, it, was, it was an ongoing thing. So I was there for Hillel's death. Yeah. Um, you know, I was there when they had to go through the drummer auditions. And the funny thing about that is that after we saw Chad play with them, do the first audition with them, um, and he was actually the, the second to last drummer that they saw, it took them days 
before they called him up and invited him to join the band and i kept calling them up going like why are you guys dragging yeah. your asses on this you this guy is like that he's 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 incredible he's yeah. he fits you like a t and they they had an issue with him because he seemed like he was a little bit too metal for them or something oh, interesting he was, he was he was very raucous but in like a in kind of like a you know crazy white boy from detroit yeah. with the with the um headband uh-huh. no <laughs> you way. know in the, in the and the and the uh, bandana type thing. Yeah. Um, but you know when he sat down at the drum kit, you just knew it. I mean, it was so funny to watch those guys because all the drummers that they tried up till that point had just been so awful. Really. And yeah, they've been. Re- it was yeah. Interestingly enough, they had really, really, very, for lack of a better word, untalented people coming in. And then this guy comes in the room. He's just loud and like boisterous and crazy. And he sits down at the drum kit and his personality comes out. And I could see like Flea and Anthony just like cracking these like dopey grins. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like one of those things when there's that kind of electricity in the room and everyone feels it, it's undeniable. But they just kept resisting it. And it was like, come on, you guys call him. Yeah. He's so good. He's so good. You'll never find someone like this again. And of course, they finally did it. As far as John, um, he was someone who'd been on the sidelines for a little while who was kind of trying to break into their kind of, I guess, group of musicians, their coterie, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, of people who are like, you know, their, their friends like Thelonious Monster and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, who'd play at the, at, at, at these little clubs in in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, I, they played with them a couple of times and I, and it just worked, you mm-hmm. know, but they went through a whole bunch of other people, mm-hmm. um, before him who just did not suit the band at all. Huh. And, you know, with John, they really they they lucked into something because he was the first person that they ever worked with who could actually write a song mm-hmm. and who understood composition. They didn't have that before, and he was basically their secret weapon. Yeah, I've always perfectly said I've always thought that same thing. Um, so let me let's talk for a minute. Well, <clears throat> Higher Ground becomes kind of the breakthrough song off that album. curious what who brought that to them did they come to you and say we're we've cooked up this incredible version of higher ground because as much as they kill it some people could offer or could argue that 
uh, covering Stevie Wonder is sort of sacred. Maybe you shouldn't do that, even though they nailed it. So whose idea was this? How did it happen? Um, well, there were a, a bunch of cover songs that had been considered for the record. Um, of of the, the batch that we were looking at, I think it came down to The Harder They Come by Jimmy Cliff. Nice. If You Want Me to Stay by Sly Stone oh, and, nice. uh, and Higher Ground. Um, they couldn't... The, see, to me, Slice, um, if you want me to stay, is a harder, that's a harder sell because mm. as good as that song is, it's nothing without Slice's vocal. Mm. I mean, if you tried to put a different singer on that, forget it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a signature, it, it's a signature piece. B, it's very much about the author. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about the guy who wrote it. It's his expression. That's a song that you can't mess with. Mm -hmm. um, the harder they come, it it sounded okay it was it was fine um you know the the way that they their interpretation of it was kind of uh you know it, it didn't it wasn't up to par but higher ground just had potential and because it's a good song see the mm. thing is is that stevie wonder is a great vocalist he's a great but he's a great songwriter and a great song like that mm -hmm. can be taken and it can be performed by other people. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you feel that his work is sacrosanct or not. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think anything is fair game as long as it's not signature. I think that there are certain artists that you can't mess with. Hendrix is one of them. I wouldn't, I mean, even though we did a Hendrix song on, um, Mm -hmm. For Fire. uplift as well, yeah. Which, well, yeah. which I, I think, I think it came out pretty well. I do too. Sure, it's, it's great. That could have been a near miss and you know it's it if you mess something like that up you're just <laughs> forget yeah. about it sure not good but the way the song was approached the way higher ground was approached was was fantastic because it started out with that bass saying do 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 you know where he's mm -hmm. playing with his thumb boom ba ba which is perfect because it resembles the um the rhythmic approach to clavinet which is of course how with stevie wonder he's there's like two or three tracks of it on that record yep um but we had a very difficult time trying to figure out how the guitar was going to go um and 
John came in with an idea where he was playing dang dang digga da digga da dang dang digga da digga da and that didn't feel right with the bass part at all. So I said, why don't you flip those parts and make it digga da digga da dang dang digga da digga da dang dang because that drives better and it sits with a doom but Yes. You know. Wow. Now the now the funny thing about that is that the band didn't like that because we'd done that with high gain guitars. And to them, it made it sound more metal. But no one could deny the fact that it actually worked. Yeah. Uh, and no one, and we, by the time the band heard it, it was really too late to change anything because no one had showed up for like months at a time while we were doing guitar overdubs. Mm. Um, you know, everyone just started filing in the last few weeks that we were finishing up. And that's when they started going, like, wait, this sounds too much like a metal record. I don't like these guitar sounds, I don't like that part. You know, I was like, well, you should have been here when we were recording it then, right? No way. <laughs> and then, Great. like, I spent a couple of days doing synth overdubs, which, of course, is something that you wouldn't really expect to find on a Chili Peppers record. But I was like, you know what? This Some of these songs really call for an, some additional textures that are just going to spice things up and could be kind of considered kind of out there. Mm -hmm. And of course, higher ground had been done by a keyboard player originally. So why not put vocoder um, synth on it? Mm. You know, so I did this wow, 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 yes. wow, 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 wow on that with the vocoder and a mini moog. And yeah. it wound up sounding really, see, the, the texture of the synth, the vocoded synth, it's got a really nice, crunchy almost distorted sound that sits perfectly with those guitars and that's one of the reasons why it worked hmm. that's incredible um tell me let's talk for a second about the drugs because uh you know drugs obviously took hillel down i know i don't remember the exact timeline i don't remember if by the time mother's milk was coming around they were uh, attempting to get clean or if they were in the throes of it what were you as much as you're comfortable saying what were you witnessing from these guys as it relates to drugs well when I came when I started working with the band um, I was told by Jack actually that oh by the way there's a drug problem mm -hmm. um, and it was sort of the the sentence was sort of cast at me so casually and so I don't want to use the word cavalier, but it was kind of, it, it just was said with such little emphasis that I was like, oh, I could, maybe someone's a little bit too much into pot or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I found out in short order that is definitely not what was happening at all, that it was, you know, full-blown heroin addictions. Yeah. Um, and suffice to say, that led to some really, really terrible complications along the way. Um, one of which was that uh, at one point in the pre-production process, which I have to say w uh, for Uplift, was very, very rigorous, mm. uh, almost impossible at times. I actually just wound up firing Anthony. <laughs> really? I, 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 I just I kicked him out of the band, uh, you know, because he was disrespecting everybody. Yeah. Um, his addiction was raging out of control. We had a record to make. They were under tremendous pressure. And I just said enough, you know, you got to go, you're slowing everyone down, which of course is definitely a case of a producer overstepping his bounds, but there was no leadership going on there at all. And something had to happen like these, the morale was so low Yeah. and 
really, it could have destroyed those. It could have destroyed the rest of them. And I just wasn't prepared to let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what did wind up happening is that Anthony actually got it together. He went back to Michigan and cleaned up. He stayed at his mom's house. In the meantime, the band were auditioning singers. And, uh, of course, which went, went absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. And Anthony contacted uh, the, the guys. And he was like, you know, just please give me one more chance. And, you know... I talked with him and I was like, look, man, you know, if you're going to if you're going to come in and do this and you're ready, I will back you 100 percent. I will be there with you every step of the way. Yeah. And he came back and he, he, he tore it up. He did an amazing job. And, uh, you know, our relationship was never the same after that, because I think it was being in the midst of that was, I think, very emotionally, very difficult for him. Yeah. And I, I can't. I, I can't hold that against him at all. Huh. Um, I can only imagine what he must have been going, the kind of like um, psychic, you know, emotional, yeah. spiritual anguish that he must have been suffering through. Um, you know, but he came back triumphant and he did, them, he did a wonderful job. Yeah. Is this why they moved on to Rick Rubin for the next album? Um, were you, was your relationship with them sort of at its end? I mean, a little, maybe a little too tense or something strange. By the end of, by the end of Mother's Milk, I think, you know, there were certain aspects of Mother's Milk that that were kind of that were strained as well. And I think by the end of it, I think you know we were all prepared to to say like yeah. that's okay. it. Okay. You know, hmm. I think yeah, and that, that the whole the episode with the drugs definitely contributed to that. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, let's move on to the Violent Femmes. Because uh, you produced the 1991 album, Why Do Birds Sing? And something I've always been curious about, I've never been able to ask this kind of a question. There are songs <laughs> out there that begin with, you know, studio chatter. And uh, American Music is one of those songs. And I always wonder if that is pre-planned or if that is a true spontaneous moment like, that just people decide music. after the fact, let's leave that into the final mix. One, two, three, four. I like American music, don't you like American music, baby? I think if it's there, there's obviously some degree of contrivance, mm. but generally speaking, it's the kind of it. it uh, I, I'm going to say it's the kind of thing where it was just it, it just was picked up spontaneously. Okay. And someone thought that it was a good idea to leave it. Okay. How did they? I mean, were the Femmes fans of the Chili Peppers, and that's how they found you, and they wanted to toughen up their sound? How did this happen? Because they're kind of the <laughs> outlier, you know, of your you know, 87 through the rest of your career, 
the Femmes are kind of an outlier. Yeah, um, I don't really know. I think oh. that they they weren't happy with the way some of their other records had turned out. They just thought this might be good, that we had a good meeting and uh, initially, and they decided, sure, let's do it. Um, mm. But it wasn't based on... It definitely wasn't based on any previous work. Actually, it might have had more to do with Rocket than anything. Else. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm not sure. Wow. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. That was an influencer with the Chili Peppers too. If truth and I be believe told. it. I believe it. Yeah. They were probably yeah. really into the funky, that funky aspect of your abilities that you showed early on in your career. They probably loved that. Well, yeah. they didn't want to work with a rock producer, and I oh. definitely was not that. Really. So, but yeah. you're the guy who made them the rock funk band that they would ultimately become. You're the, but they, that's so fascinating. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. Well, it worked. Um, okay. It's, now we got to talk about uh, uh, Grave Dancers Union, Soul Asylum. Uh, talk about a band that had been totally underground. And then all of a sudden they come out of the blue with this, you know, thing that sells 6 million copies or whatever. What was it like working with them? They, Dave Perner has always been this very respected songwriter, but not necessarily, uh, didn't necessarily garner like massive success until like Runaway Train. And then that's the only song most people even know of theirs, you know? Yeah. How did this happen? Yeah. savvy person working for me who uh, found me that demo who knew who was very familiar with the band um, it's I, I, it's worthwhile to mention that most if not all of the artists that I've worked with are people who either either wasn't really that familiar with before I <laughs> before I produced their records or I, or or I was never particularly a fan of um, yeah I wasn't really a you know, I, I wasn't that familiar with Soul Asylum. Uh -huh. uh, and, uh, but this gentleman working with me was a big fan. And he was like, you know, you should definitely have a go at this. And I listened. I, 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 he I heard the demo. And by the time I got to the end of it, I, I was shaking my head going like, I wonder why every single record producer under the face of you know under the sun yeah, yeah. is desperately trying to get this project because basic because most of the record was on that demo it was just phenomenal and really? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, the first song on the demo is Runaway Train. Really? Which, That's what you heard and that convinced you you had to get in there? Yeah, I mean, it's an it's a very acoustic version. Uh -huh. It's kind of like a laid back sort of country-ish kind of version. And yeah. we obviously gave it, we made, gave it more bite. Uh -huh. But um, I heard that song and I was like, this is just an amazing, amazing song. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the video presents it as something much different than what the song text actually is. Uh -huh. But... You know, it's it's a very compelling emotional piece of work, right. uh, and that's what again, that's what I am moved by the most. And it was all there, and I was like, oh my goodness! And I, as it turned out, I was up against about four other people, and I, I don't know. I, I, I feel that the that the stars were working with me at that particular point in yeah, time. That's I'm very fortunate. I, I'm very grateful to have gotten the chance to work with those guys. Good. Um, yeah, there's, uh, I want someone to, somebody to shove. That's such a great, such a great song. You know what's funny about that one? Uh, I just, I'll just say um, that song was the result of us kind of getting ready to record. And David, you know, about 15 minutes before we were getting ready to start recording, he's like, "I got this other song, you know, that 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 I just came up with." And I was like, "What is it?" And he played it for me. I was like, "Get out there and do really? that." That's awesome. Yes, I was like, "That's that's absolutely fantastic." He By said, the way, I will also. Oh, go ahead. No, I was I was just gonna say that I feel that Dave is highly underrated as yeah. a songwriter. I mean, and it's I one of one of the things that I've always felt not regretful about because it has doesn't really concern me per se, but it, it saddens me that he never was really able to get beyond yeah. that record because his his talents as far as songwriting and lyric uh, lyric writing are just they're transcendental. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, his. That's what his loyal fans have been saying for decades. You know, is that yeah. you know, pay attention to this guy. He's special, and it's never quite translated like it should. But you know, I, it's just I'm sitting here thinking. I'm remembering him at the Oscars with Winona Ryder, and it, how mm -hmm. you know she's the it beautiful it it girl of the time, and he's this dreadlocked, weird looking rocker, and the whole world is like, why are these two together? But they're together because he's a great musician and because Runaway Train is a big hit and you helped make it a big hit. That moment is partly uh, because of you, if you scale it back. 
I'm just realizing this. I'm really trying hard not to say this, but... <laughs> say it! So I got Dave Perner laid, in other words. Yes! Yes! That's even better! Yes, you said it better than I did. Yes! Oh, and that's just from Winona. Who knows how? what else has come from thanks to Runaway Train? Well, he's a, he's a stand-up... He's a stand-up guy, so I, I'm happy to have done it. Good. Good for you, man. It's all you. Okay, now <laughs> to completely switch... <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. To switch gears completely, now we got to go to Soundgarden and Super Unknown, one of the landmark albums of the 90s, for sure. And um, I... Just so we don't have to switch gears all the way, you can tell me your impressions about Chris in a minute, but I am really curious about... Um, specific, specifically the creation of Black Hole Sun. this hard and fast you know sort of hardcore almost punkish metal but also sort of hard, uh, melodic rock band that comes to you the furthest thing from top 40 radio and they bring you black hole sun and they have a smash out of it tell me how that happened well it actually is kind of an interesting story um we had um we had a good portion of the record written. Um, when I got involved, they sent me a demo tape and they had about a third of the record there, but it wasn't enough to make a record with. So I, I basically, I said to them, look guys, like we're, you know, we're a little ways off here. And so the next two months were spent with them writing songs. And Chris was sending me new material like every couple of weeks. And at one point, he sent me a demo that had about 11 to 13 new tracks on it, all of which were kind of just okay, mm. sort of. Like, there wasn't one out of the batch that I could say, all right, this is, this is really good. We got to do this. And th that was worrisome because we were, you know, we'd been in sure. this writing state for about a month and a half or so at that point. And I realized that I had to have a conversation with Chris and... Suffice it to say, the conversation became very fruitful because I was able to identify what he was, what he was writing for, like what his focus was on when he was writing songs. And I realized that he needed to kind of reorient. And we talked about not, not about songs that he felt that he should be writing, but songs that he wanted to write, like music that was really dear to him mm -hmm. and really felt special to him. 
you know, which he didn't, he couldn't really relate to this initially because he felt that he had to write for Soundgarden fans. But I was like, you don't know any of these people. Yeah. Like, why would you, you know, you, you only see them when they come to your shows. You're aware that they're buying your records and they love your music, but really you don't know these people. So why are you trying to, why, why are you trying to do something for yeah. them when basically the, what, what it is that you do is what they love? You know, you don't have to give them any more than that. Just keep doing just keep doing what it is that you do. And what that should be in this case, if we're talking about an evolution, is doing what feels right to you as an artist. You know, are you so what kind of to, music? Yeah, are you telling him to call upon artists that he likes? And if you no, did, no, no. oh, I didn't know if you're like, you know, I, he, he says, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan. You say, well, then you channel Johnny Cash or whatever it might be. You okay, know? well, it, all right, yes. Actually, that's that's pretty much exactly what happened. Oh, okay. I did, I misunderstood you. Yeah, I said, "What kind of music are you listening to?" And he said, "The Beatles and Cream." And I said, "Okay, mm. then write a song that sounds like the Beatles and Cream." Yeah, you know, and you know, he 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 was like, "Well, what if it doesn't sound like Soundgarden?" And I was like, "Don't worry about yeah. that, because when you play it with your band, it will sound like Soundgarden because you are Soundgarden." That's right. It's that simple. Yeah. And three weeks later, I got a demo with four songs on it. Fell on Black Days was the first, mm. which is an incredible, also an incredible song. It's one of my favorite um, songs of all time, Fell on Black yeah, Days. Yeah, it was the first song on this tape. The minute I heard it, I was like, oh, God, this is so good. And the yeah. two, there were songs, tr tracks two and three, we didn't wind up using, um, even though I, I thought they were both terrific songs. And the last song was Black Hole Sun. And from the first few notes, I was like, what in God's name is this? Yeah. This is amazing. And what was crazy is I was just waiting for him to do something to somehow derail the whole thing because I, I'd gotten used to songwriters kind of setting things up really good and then not really knowing how to end it or how to right. how to make the how to keep you know the the listener's interest level to help sustain it. You know, somewhere along the way there would be one little trip that the, that the songwriter had taken and be like, okay, we got to fix this. We got to mm -hmm. fix that. Mm -hmm. And I was listening and listening and it never came. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you something that is an experience that happens very, very rarely, very rarely. It's yeah. so, so incredibly special. I just, I was stunned. I played this song 15 times in a row and I called the guy up and I was like, you're a fucking genius. Mm. Really? <laughs> yep. Now, did you anticipate, I mean, like I was saying earlier, it's, you know, Soundgarden are not a top 40 type band, but here they have this hit. I know, I'm sure that you thought you were making a great song. Did you anticipate that song having the legs that it's had? I mean, it's a classic. It's a, one of the biggest songs of the 90s, you know? I, I didn't. Um, all, I, all I cared about was that it made me feel good, that, good. It, that it had an effect on me, that it had a very, very palpable emotional effect on me. What was surprising to me, though, is that I played it for a bunch of other people and they were kind of they were completely unmoved by it. Mm. And I was like, I'm, are we listening to the same piece of music? Right. right. Like it really surprised me. But I, I I just I felt so strongly about it and I just kept on with it. In the end, it was like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there's no question about it yeah. well it's not so much i won it's just I, i'm glad that my instincts told yeah. you know that i listened to my instincts because they were right yeah yeah um i want to ask you about one more song and then we'll get into chris tell me about spoon man
I remember part, like instrumental, interstitial instrumental versions or parts of that song being played in the background of singles, the movie singles. And then, uh-huh. uh, and then hearing a completed song, did they, was the song completed and they took pieces of it for singles or did they take the interstitial music from singles and build a whole song around it? Why a song about a guy that plays spoons? Tell me the story <laughs> of Spoon Man. Um, well, this, that was actually composed before I came into the project. That was okay. one of the okay. songs that were on the, that were on, that was on the initial demo. Um, as far as the composition of it, I, I really don't know. I, I don't know what its origins are, and I never okay. really asked because it was it was working for me, and I was yeah. like, this is fine. Um, but the subject of the song is a gentleman named Artis, uh, who I, I don't know if he's still with us, but right. uh, he was the spoon man. He was a street musician yeah. in Seattle, and uh, you know he'd play at like Pike Market and places mm-hmm. like this. And, uh, of course, because the song is about him, they had to have him come in and play the spoon. Sure. I remember. <laughs> um, yeah. which is, which was one of the most memorable days I've ever spent in a recording studio. Really? Uh, um, because this guy comes in, we mic him up, which is essentially an ambient mic array. Um, oh, you know, two ambient mics overhead. And he kind of unraveled this, uh, I don't know, it was like something out of a backpack uh, that was full of all these metal implements. And he just, the only thing he said was like, you're going to want to film this. So someone had to have a video camera and the track rolls and he starts pulling these things out and playing them. But he's, while he's playing the spoons, he's also beating the shit out of himself with these bits of metal. And, and after a while, there's like blood flying everywhere. It was, yeah. And he did about like five or six takes. You know, he he didn't yeah. stop. He would not stop. He was, you know, he wanted to make sure we had everything. And he just, it was, you know, it's funny because you can look at a person like this and say, wow, that guy's out of his mind. He's loony. But, you know, there was something really inspiring to see someone who had that level of commitment do what he did and devote himself. To the point where he was, where his body was actually sure. in physical pain, which I don't recommend to other people, but like, I I admired that, and continue to so much as 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 weird as that may sound. No. Uh, it was, and it was really it was very inspiring to watch. You know, I yeah. mean, while everyone was in the room like shaking their heads, going like, "Oh my God, what is this?" Right. Because <laughs> no yeah. one no one had expected that at all. Sure. Okay. So tell me about Chris. Did he show, from what I understand, and I'm, you know, I'm not an expert, but from what I understand is that he took, uh, as lots of people do, uh, like antidepressant medication, and the night, I think it was in Detroit, um, when he did ultimately kill himself in that hotel room, he had taken maybe a couple extra pills, and that that is what sort of caused him to do that. And most people who who knew him at the time all sort of said he didn't seem to show any signs. It didn't, we weren't alarmed. Did you, when you were close with him, did you notice any kind of self-destructive behavior? And I don't mean drugs, everybody's on drugs, but (laughs) depression or, you know, self-harm. Did you see any of this? No, no, nothing like that at all. I mean, I knew that he had a rough upbringing um, and he was definitely a very, he was, he, he had many facets. I mean, he could be a very dark person from time to time. 
and uh you know but also he had a very sort of whimsical like silly sense of humor i mean it was very sort of lighthearted and and funny and uh you know i mean i still have recordings of him messing around the studio that are hysterical um you know he 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 certainly had elements i think of what could spiral into stuff like that but there was never even like the slightest inkling yeah that 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 could be happening i mean i think that he he may or may not have been going through a rough time when we were recording, but there weren't any drugs involved. Hmm. Um, certainly if there were, he did a better job than anyone I've ever seen being able to conceal that. Really? Um, and it, yeah. And the thing is, if you're singing yeah. and you're taking drugs, there's no way that you can hide that. There's absolutely no way. Because if you're a vocalist, you have to be in really good physical shape. Yeah. Anyone, Anyone who's dealing with illness, anyone who's dealing with, any kind of addiction problem, um, it's going to show right away in the vocal because the vocal is the only instrument that's con- that, that emanates directly from a human body. Mm. You know, you can't mm-hmm. you can't hide it. It comes out on a microphone. Like, and there's a certain kind of fatigue um, or wear that you can hear when a vocalist is under the weather. Mm-hmm. You know, or when they're or when they're taking drugs, or even if they've had a cup of coffee. Or even if they're hungover from the night before, you could hear it all. The voice never lies, yeah. especially when it's on a microphone. And I never got that from Chris. When Chris mm. came in to sing, he was all business. Mm. Like, wow. and you know, he he worked so hard. He had an extraordinary work ethic. I mean, if other vocalists had like a tenth of that kind of work ethic. Mm. Um, I, I can tell you the world would be a different place. It was yeah. incredible working with him and seeing the kind of and, and seeing the degree of himself that he put into into what he did. It was very very impressive. Uh, and yeah, I can't I can't say enough good stuff about good, that. Good. Good. Uh, what were your thoughts when you found out that he committed suicide? Um, I, I was. I was in a state of shock. I mean, I hadn't been, I wasn't close to Chris when we worked together and I hadn't spoken to him, but maybe a few times, like I ran into him once or twice with my wife, Mm. um, purely out of the blue. Um, and when I actually, it was my wife who woke me up and told me and, uh, I was in an absolute state of shock. I mean, it's still hard to imagine that he's that he's gone. Yeah, um, sure he was just one of those people that had so much going for him. You really couldn't imagine that he would do something like that. But yeah. uh, no, there's 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 a great deal that lurks in the human heart that we don't that we don't sometimes know about. Yeah, it's true. Uh, what you're saying seems to be what a lot of other people were saying when it happened. Just there weren't necessarily these signs, so it's a shame. Uh, speaking of self-destructive behavior, let's talk about Ozzy for a minute. So, um, I don't know where he was at. I think he was probably in between uh, rehab stints, probably maybe on his doing okay, because I think he was still doing the show around this time. But Osmosis in 1995, it's got Perry Mason on it.
it's a little bit of a different Ozzy album, but is he is Ozzy hearing things like Super Unknown and saying, I want a piece of this. I got to get in with this Beinhorn guy and have him make my next, you know, that's what I'm imagining because Ozzy, far be it from Ozzy to let, you know, a trend go by. And if he's hearing the best rock albums of the generation and they're all coming from you, he wants to hop on that crazy train. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, it's possible. I mean, I, I don't know. I really, I, I never got that impression. It's like, oh, the really? Truth. Oh, interesting. That's what I would have assumed. Okay. Um, I, I think the decision might have been made for him. I'm not uh, sure. Possibly. You might be right. You might be right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Sharon decided. That's even, that's even kind of a little bit cooler. Sharon um, was like super unknown is really hot right now. We got to get you in there, Oz. That's I honestly cool think, I think that's more along the lines of what, what actually yeah. happened. Okay. Okay. I, I'm, I'm assuming, of course. Yeah. Um, do you have any Aussie stories? Um, too many. Um, <laughs> yes. Can you share one or, you know, what's your favorite one? Oh God. Um, <laughs> is there one that's not going to get you into trouble, but that everyone's going to love? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think so. Uh, okay. I, I, they, they all, they're all tinged with a little bit of darkness perhaps. Okay. Um, the one thing I will one thing I will say about him without going too far into it is that he's he's one of the best storytellers I've ever met in my entire life. Oh, um, he was able to, and he's definitely got quite a few. Mm -hmm. um, he he was able to, and he could tell the same story ten times over, uh, not realizing, of course, that he'd already told it. Uh -huh. um, yeah. But he had this ability to take something that was incredibly dark or unpleasant. Um, or, or even downright, like you just don't want to talk about this at all, and turn it into something where you could have people laughing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he was able to do this, but um, you know, I mean, he he told the story of um, when Randy Rhodes died, mm -hmm. and somehow I, I I can't figure out how he did it. There were parts of it where he was able to make it laugh. All of the serious stuff was very very serious, as yeah. you can imagine, because yeah. he was there when it happened, and it was from his uh, observation, kind of grisly. Sure. Um, but, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, were his kids around? Was, you know, were they, were Kelly and Jack around and they were filling, filming scenes for the show or anything like that? Did you have to deal with that stuff? Oh, that came long after I was involved with oh, them. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that never, that, that never entered, entered the picture at all, actually. Um, okay. You know, no, I, I met his children. I mean, they were they were lovely, actually. Okay. Okay. They were, they were very sweet. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let's talk about social distortion now. Uh, white light, white heat, white trash. I will admit is not my favorite social D album, and I love social distortion, and I feel like a little bit like maybe this was their attempt, like we've been establishing here, of going a little heavier, getting with the times being a little darker and grungier. I Was Wrong is a really great track nonetheless. But were they coming to you saying, we need you to kind of toughen us up? We want to change a little bit? Or what happened there? No, I think um, at that time, uh, I had become a staff producer for Epic Records, which is how I, one of the reasons that I was also able to work with Ozzy because he was on uh, Epic at the time. Okay. Um, yeah, so the same thing happened with um, social distortion. Like I was in that um, universe, so to speak, 
and uh, I, I, I was I was available to them, and we agreed that it would be a good marriage, and uh, you know, so we started working together. Actually, funnily enough, um, I stopped work on Social Distortions records so I could do Ozzy's record. So there was about a <laughs> there was a very very long break in between the time that I started Social D and uh, picked it up again and finished it. Huh. What's Mike Ness like to work with? I mean, he's he's kind of an icon. I love that guy, but he <laughs> I could he could that okay. You chuckle. Either he is or he's a tough guy to deal with, and either would make total sense. Um, I would say a bit of both. Okay. Um, I I enjoyed working with him very much. Um, I think he's obviously incredibly talented and uh, you know a very important performer. And, uh, you know, he's, his influence is felt and heard in a lot of music that people are making right now. You know, it's, uh, he's, he is definitely iconic in that way. I don't think that he's, um, well, I mean, I guess he's, I think he's probably at a place in his life where he's, he's, he's pretty happy. Okay. I mean, that's my assumption. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that he needs any greater recognition than what he's got, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I mean, people people do respect him highly, yeah. and I I think I think people have acknowledged outright consistently how much of uh, how much they owe him. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it I think it's worked out pretty well for him. Yeah, yeah. He um, he seems to have maintained all of his street cred. You know, for a guy who it's. Uh, I mean, it, I guess he's considered a punk, even though his music's a little more rockabilly. I've always thought Green Day sounded just like, you know, an evolution of social distortion. But he still yeah. has he's, he still has all of his street cred. Those same people just don't see him as someone who's ever sold out, ever catered to the man, even though he's had commercial successes and probably even sought more commercial successes. But he's always been real or at least appeared to be real. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, he's <laughs> he's definitely he's 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 done the work. Yeah, yeah, okay. These these are very diplomatic answers, Michael. I like this. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, I the the thing is, is that I don't want to skate too far into certain areas when I'm no. talking about this stuff because, you know, it, it's not just about like getting people in trouble because you know airing dirty laundry or telling stories that are kind of sorted and things yeah. like that. It's kind of like it's for me, it's kind of messing with the memory of something uh, a little bit. You sorry. know what I mean? Yeah, like, I do. I, I, I really like. They were working on some of these projects. Was well, working on all of them, were, were, there were joyful moments and there were moments that were absolutely, absolute drudgery, Yeah, you know, yeah. that were, that were headaches. And, you know, some of it, like actually working with Mike, there, there was definitely moments that were very, very cathartic, huh. you know, I mean, we spent, we spent months trying to get vocals. Um, and I was hearing him because I'd, I, because I'd heard him sing live and I knew he could do this, but on records, I felt that he really, that he always kind of fell a little short of the mark. I mean, that was my own feeling about it, of course. Uh-huh. And, you know, there was just this point where he kind of, he, he crossed this line where he really kind of gave so much more in the vocal performances. And I was like, that's it. That's yeah. fantastic. And, you know, he finally got it. But, you know, there, there were a lot of moments like that on, on that record, on Ozzy's record, 
and there are things that are you know that involve a lot more personal details and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, okay. those are the you'll 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 permit me that. Sure, and I hope <laughs> I hope that you I mean. know. Sure, I hope that you know that when I ask these questions, I'm not necessarily looking for anything salacious. I mean, you could say, you know, Ozzy liked to eat pepperoni pizza, or you know, Mike had bad breath, or Chris Cornell, <laughs> you know, wore Dracar Noir. Uh, you know, cologne. It could be any little bit of color. I'm not necessarily hoping that you're going to tell something, some bad story or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, you, you've seen these people, they're icons to us. We've only ever seen them on stage or on TV and you, you know, you've smelled them and touched them and been around them. And so I was just curious what your, you know, what little takeaways you come from, you bring, or you take from these interactions, you know? I'm so That's grateful all. that Chris didn't wear Dracar Noir, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> one thing, one thing he could do that, one thing that he, that he could do that, that he was very proud of that I couldn't do was that he could do lat pull, he could do 150 pound lat pull down. No, really? <laughs> oh. He was very proud of himself. And I think I was able to get up to 130 at a time when I actually could do that much. And I was like, damn, damn him. Oh, (laughs) man. What can't that guy do? I mean, he was gorgeous. He could could do 150-pound lap pull-downs. He had the Uh, most incredible voice. He wrote incredible music. If any guy seemed to have it all, it would be someone like Chris Cornell. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I'm well. That's that, that another thing that still has me shaking my head, going like, "Oh, Chris, yeah. oh." Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, let's talk for one second about the verve pipe, because I recently spoke with Brian Vanderark, and uh, he's a really nice guy, and that yes, album really tanked in to epic proportions. I talked about it he didn't single you out or anything like that it was just the timing and the amount of time it took to get the album out and my personal feeling is that it also had a really terrible cover that no one wants to buy a picture of a dissected frog what was it like working with the verve pipe um i i think they they were very you know again really really talented people um i don't I don't think that we were that the songs were up to par on that record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's that? I don't either, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's. I, I think it probably could have been a, a lot better on on everyone's part. And w- there were also 
a lot of technical hitches and uh you know i i i have to be honest that uh in in my case um my marriage at that point was falling apart so i don't think that it helped things very much um it was it was tough i mean they you know they were trying very hard but it it definitely felt like there was that it was a case of bad timing all the way around yeah yeah it's a shame you know, because those guys were had a lot of momentum at their you know in their sales and then that album tanked and honestly they've been great ever since that album yeah. it, to people who have been keeping track they've gone more in like a, almost a power pop sort you know Adam Schlesinger from the Fountains of Wayne comes in and produces them they've been great ever since and I know that they lost you know the majority of their audience with that album and it's a shame because if those people came back and gave them an, another chance and went on to maybe the next record or the one after that they would they would come back and be happy you know but they they yeah. they lost too much momentum with that one yeah that was that was definitely a tough one i think yeah. for everybody yeah um okay let's talk about now i will admit um i've never been a big corn fan uh i and i've i've always i've never liked marilyn manson but these are they were icons of the era, and you worked with them. Um, the Dope Show is another one of the biggest songs or singles from the era, and that was a transformative album for him and for a lot of fans and everything. What can you tell us about working with Marilyn Manson, specifically on Mechanical Animals? Well, I, sh I think it's everything that you could probably have imagined. Really? On your okay. Own. <laughs> yeah. That's what it seems like. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of a, it, it, it was more, it was, I would say probably more like a carnival mm. every day. You know, you just didn't know whether it was going to be a happy carnival or a really like a really like a downer, like bad acid trip carnival. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. You know, but yeah. uh, one thing. One thing about Brian is that when he got into the studio and he, it was his turn to, to work, it was pretty much all about business. Um, he was very, very um, focused, uh, and he, you know, he would work very hard, you know, mm -hmm. as did all the all the rest of the guys in the band. I mean, they were definitely distractions from time to time, but yeah. um, you know, they 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 knew what they were doing. Yeah, were you a big drug guy? 
I mean, we've established what has been going on around you with some of the bands you've produced. What about you yourself? That's a very direct question. I like that. <laughs> really? Okay, good. Yes. Good. That's very good. Um, I mean, I've dabbled in my life, but sure. the thing is, is that I, I never felt that that drug use or alcohol use had any place in a recording studio. Um, I've never seen it. I've never seen any kind of substance usage in a creative environment yield good yield anything positive. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there are people who will get artists uh, drunk, mm. you know, or whatever it takes to kind of loosen them up. And I yeah. I will admit that there that on one piece of music that I worked on, which was Sun Made actually on the um, Grave Dancers Union, Dave actually did have some some alcohol. He was a little bit tipsy when he did that, and you can kind of hear it in the vocal performance. But for the most part, I just find that to be such a tremendous waste. Yeah. Um, so naturally, you know, you wouldn't if you, you would definitely not be finding me okay. doing anything like that in a recording. Absolutely not. Okay. When uh, we'll call him Brian. When Brian is, uh, you know, recording and creating that album. It seems when it came out with the video for the dope show and his costuming and all this kind of stuff, it felt very um, like there was a um, like a, a concept behind it. You know, there was. Oh, yeah. When and some have called it very heavily Bowie influenced. I think it goes much deeper and darker than that. Was he formulating this with you as they're creating the album? Are, are, is, are you privy to this? Is And are those kinds of things even planned? Is he like, you know. Michael, I've been thinking about on this next album, I'm going to wear very, you know, uh, I'm going to look like a Ken doll. You know, I'm going to have like androgynous genitalia and I'm going to have one of my eyes be a different color and I'm going to be really androgynous. Is he telling you these things? Do you hear him, overhear him on the phone with another guy in the band be like, guys, guess what we're going to do? We're going to dress up like women, like a robotic <laughs> women, you know, what, what, what are you hearing? Um, I was privy to it, but but mainly as an onlooker. I mean, my oh. my input uh, my input in on that recording uh, certainly from a conceptual or well visual perspective. Um, I always felt that I was able to sort of translate that conceptual aspect back into the music, um, which is something that I, I I particularly enjoyed about that record. But as far as the visual presentation. The, the concept behind it, that was all stuff that he 
had worked out while the songs were being written. Mm. Uh, and that was the that was the basis of the of the record that he wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, there is a tremendous Bowie influence that people picked up on, but there's also um, aspects of guys like J.G. Ballard, mm-hmm. um, who's uh, who's a great writer um, and uh, was the actually the inspiration for um, oh shit, not Crash. Oh yeah, it was Crash. Oh. Um, and oddly enough, um, that the that book that that's based on uh-huh. was also the influence for um, a song called uh, "Warm Leatherette" by The Normal. Yeah, the Normal, sure. Yeah, that's all based on J.G. Ballard's writing. Is it okay? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, go go back to the to the lyrics, and, yeah. you know, and see what he's talking about, and then watch the movie. You know, watch that movie with um, was it. Was it James Spader? I can't remember. Um, yes. Um, yes, I'm piecing all this together now, yeah. Holly Hunter's in there, Rosanna Arquette. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's all related. Ballard wrote a lot of, wrote a lot of really, um, well, very bizarre yeah. uh, stuff along, along those lines. And he talked a lot about the Kennedy assassination. And there's, and there's lines on mechanical animals um, pertaining to the Kennedy assassination. And so it's really, it's kind of flavored, like the influences are coming from, from other places. It's not just like the direct yeah. lift from Bowie. Uh-huh. Um, it's, you know, some of it's more literary like that. Some of it's more, um, uh, f- more filmic, more cinematic. Uh, you know, he, 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 he drew from a lot of places. He's a very intelligent person and he is, his his conceptual ideas are, are fantastic, um, you know. And and I was I I really I, I liked where he was coming from very much because it made what he was doing relatable to me. Um, I I enjoy the high concept stuff very much. Okay, okay. Um, let's uh, let's talk about Hole for a minute. I mean, talk about transformations. You know, Courtney Love. This is the first. Post Kurt Suicide album, Celebrity Skin, that's a big hit. Poppier, uh, Billy Corgan is apparently in there somewhere. You can confirm or deny this. Uh, this is another uh, moment where a band that is 
supposedly underground, but making a lot of inroads and gathering a lot of steam, makes a big bold statement into the into the masses, you know, to become popular. And um, was this a did you help them? Was this part of the plan all along? How did you help them? What was that like? Again, going back to drugs. I mean, uh, okay. That... <laughs> um, well, first, uh, I I will I will say that unequivocally, the Corgan was involved. In fact, he was originally supposed to produce the record. Was he? Okay. Uh, yes, and he did a lot of work with them. He co-wrote about three songs on the record. So um, he was in pre-production with them for a little while, but he had to back out because he had to work on his own record. Um, so he very, very kindly recommended the, to them to work with me. Nice. Um, which surprised me very much because he and I had never met at that point. Mm. So when I had the opportunity, because he also suggested me for Manson's record. So I, I always, wow. I, I always uh, take the opportunity to thank him for, for that. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it very much. Um, as far as the direction of the record, um, that was something that they had decided a while before I got involved. And yes, their idea was to make a very shiny uh -huh. commercial pop record. That was, you know, but their references for pop music were much different than other people's at that point. They were really um, more interested in, I guess, stuff that, you know, that I that would have been considered hipster at that point, like their pop references were ABBA, and and oh. Fleetwood, you know stuff sure. that was that makes sense, staggeringly successful back in its day, um, and that people still obviously thrive on now. Uh, but they wanted to do something that had that kind of that had that pop sugariness, but at the same time had a really strong emotional wallop, which. Obviously, in the case of both ABBA and Fleetwood Mac, it's it's very, very, very present. Yeah. Uh, and but they they wanted to make something that would be extremely commercially viable. That wouldn't really, in any way. Well, I can't say wouldn't in any way because the Leopard can't really change its spot, so to speak. Uh -huh. But um, they wanted to make something that would veer away from being a punk rock statement. Okay. Um you uh it must have gone well enough that because courtney came back to work with you on the what's it called anyone's daughter nobody's daughter nobody's daughter, nobody's yeah, daughter right. album from a couple years ago How had Courtney changed in those years? I mean, she blew up and then, uh, you know, in a in a big way, like a firework, and kind of burned out all, you know, a few years later. What was that like? Yeah, 
Well, um, I'll suffice it to say I didn't stay on the project. Oh, um, I, I didn't last. I, I really I couldn't I couldn't continue. Um, I consider Courtney a friend. I, I adore her very much. Um, it was very difficult to work under those conditions. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really, I, I, I felt like it, it just wasn't going well. Um, so yeah, I had to, I had to leave. Okay. Okay. Um, wow, this is great. Well, look that we've covered most of the albums that I was curious about. There's a few other singles. If I throw a couple names at you, if there's a great story, will you just share it with me real quick? Cause I know you, I, yeah, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I will, I will do my level best. Ah, thanks, man. Okay. Of course. Tell me about uh, Living Color, Sunshine of Your Love. Yeah, they're they're a great band. Um, we yeah, it was for a movie. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we had to do it. We had to do it for True Lies, uh-huh. um, and we did it, and and that was it. And I think the hardest part of it was trying to convince Vernon Reed to play the uh, opening notes of uh, the uh, solo that Clapton plays in the original, which is actually. I'm sure you know this, but that's the opening melody to Blue Moon. No, I mean, think about it. Blue it Moon. Do, 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 do. That's yeah. how he starts the soul. Do, And then he goes into a blues run from there. But uh, Vernon was very, very resistant to that. Um, but for better or for worse, you know, whatever he did to start the solo out just didn't, it didn't sit as well as, as that. So he finally, he, he agreed. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and then last one, I want to hear about uh, painted on my heart from the cold.
this is another another situation where a band that was kind of more underground or alternative uh, for the Gone in 60 Seconds soundtrack, they were sort of going through a transformation at this time anyway. You know, he's, Ian's cut his hair a little bit and wearing tighter clothes. There's less goth. There's less, you know, vampire feelings everywhere. Are they... What was it like producing them? Were they sort of trying to sort of make a pitch to get into, you know, popularity, mainstream popularity at that point too? I can't really answer that. Oh, um, okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, I, possibly. Um, okay. It was it was interesting. I mean, it was it, it was actually not not a not bad making it it was um although the last night that i was working on it i i kind of got into it with um with billy the guitarist uh-huh um <laughs> which which led to me not working with them anymore oh. um it was it, it, it was it was a very it was a very uncomfortable experience but like you know overall it was a lot of fun to do it mm-hmm. um you know it was it was a Diane Warren song and she's a terrific songwriter. She's the best. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, that I, I would say that was not necessarily one of her best songs, but it was definitely, you know, I, it sat well with them because it actually had, um, an element like it it did have a dark element. There's a lot of minor chords in it. So it kind of lent itself to more of a Gothic type feel. Um, which was fun because it was sort of, it was interesting cracking the code on that one and figuring out ways to kind of get the guitar to work on that where I wasn't having him play minor chords when um, with when, when he was doing um, overdriven guitar tracks. Hmm. Um, so um, orchestrating the guitar on that one was uh, it was it was good. I really enjoyed that part okay. of it a lot. OK. Uh, speaking of soundtracks, what all did you have to do with the Reality Bite soundtrack? Um, just the song, really. Um, just just the, the Ethan Hawke song, right? Yeah, just that one. was a lot of fun too actually really <laughs> yeah it was, it was fun why what makes you chuckle like that when you say that um well i 
I managed to do it with um, Jack Irons, who's one of my favorite drummers. Uh-huh. And um, Ethan, it's really funny because he really, I mean, he was such a, like, you know, when you see him now, he can play sort of like characters who are a little bit more grizzled. Yeah. Um, but back then he was this like sweet, sensitive kid. And he comes in to do this song and he sings it and it just, there's just no life in it at all. And we wound up doing it 200 times. No, really? I, 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 I put, not intentionally, of course, but it wound up feeling like this is the right way to go. I mean, I hate what, what I'm doing to this person, uh-huh. but it just felt like the right way to go. I got him to a point where his voice was so beat up and so like just just torn up that it started to really kind of it really it began to speak. And what was funny is that the people who were working on the record, I mean, who were, who were working on the film because um, the producer was there. And she said afterwards that that whole experience helped him find his way into uh, the part in the movie. Um, so I think I, I actually I, I helped him do a little bit of method acting there. Okay. And he was a massive sex symbol uh, after that movie or thanks to that movie. That kind of launched him. So once again, you got Dave Perner laid with Winona Ryder and you got Ethan Hawke also with the help of Winona Ryder to become a sex symbol. And funnily enough, funnily enough, while we were working on that song, Dave showed up with Winona. Really? <laughs> yeah. See? Yes. Who I think Ethan was hot on at the time. So there was this sort of like um, bizarre sort of triangle that was yes. non-existent. Um, yes. It's very, very, yeah. There's something strange and kismetish and at the same time totally illusory and that Not even. Great. I don't know. <laughs> oh man, that is great. See, it all comes yeah. full circle. You're the, you're the linchpin in all circle. this, Michael. That's great. Uh, okay, two last questions. I got one song I'm going to ask you about. We're going to close out with that. And so, um, but before that, you know, you talk about. Um, it sounds like people with. Uh, it, there's always got to be clashing between a producer and an artist. And what what would you say? without naming names or giving specifics, what would you say people clashed with you the most? You were talking about, you know, coming to the end of your ro- of the road on your relationships with certain bands or, you know, I didn't want to be on the project anymore. They didn't want me on the project anymore. What causes that? What puts something like this over the edge? Um, there really isn't any one answer to that. It's really? just, I think when you've gotten to a point in a situation i mean it's like a relationship essentially you know you know when it's not working anymore i mean but but there's also a gulf between knowing that something's not working and being able and being prepared to do something about it to act on it yeah um you know in the case of of these projects you know where there's kind of a where there's a break that happens between the personnel you just you know you you realize you've come to the end of your road or or that was good, and I don't think we're going to repeat it again. <laughs> okay. You know, um, you know. I mean, there there have been some cases though where there have been you know very severe clashes or situations on a recording, like on that whole record, for example, when we uh, you know we had a, had to change had to replace the drummer. Um, you know, which 
wind up being incredibly stressful for everyone on the project. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was a that, that was a very very difficult situation to uh, to reconcile. Um, but you know, when you're dealing with something that's that fraught, you really have to um, prioritize what it is that you're trying to do. Like, what's the purpose behind all this? Why are we all here? And it's always got to be about making the best recording possible. Um, and sometimes a person in my position is put in a position, is put in in a relationship to the artist that they're working with that they don't want to be put in. Like, I don't want to have to tell someone your drummer is not working out on this project, you know, or we have to take serious steps here because we've got a problem. I don't want to be in that position. I can't imagine that anyone would. But when I've been in a position like that, I always have to take a step back and go, why am I here? Am I here to try and make people feel good and let something pass that is going to potentially be detrimental, not only to the value of this project, not only its success, but its its intrinsic value, its meaning over time, you know? Or am I going to do the right thing by the project, by what mm. by what I see it being, by what my vision of this project is, and what I feel it can ultimately turn out for for the artist, uh-huh. you know? And always that priority is going to is going to have to win out. It has to, no matter what the cost is, even if it means me potentially getting fired off a record, mm. because I don't want to have to live knowing that I I avoided a confrontation. Because I wanted, I, I didn't want to hurt someone's feelings, or I yeah. wanted to stay friends with them. That's a very poor excuse for doing anything, especially if you're collaborating with someone creatively. I'm being paid, yeah. for my opinion. I'm being paid to be able to help them, to be able to do what I feel is beneficial to their career. And if I walk away from that situation because I'm afraid of a confrontation, then I'm letting the artist stand, and I'm absolutely not doing my job. Mm-hmm. That's well said. Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, okay. Well, first of all, thank you for talking with me, Michael. You're you're a legend. You're behind oh, so much you. music that I love, if you can't tell. Um, <laughs> so I'm really grateful for the work you've put out into this world. It's Thank you so much. So I good. appreciate that. Uh, last question. Tell me about Brian Eno. Um, you worked on the Ambient 4 album. I don't know if you were on the whole album or just on the Lizard Point track or what, but how did this happen? Was he a material um, fan? Just that one. Uh I don't think so. Uh, I, I I was lucky enough to be in a band with at that time uh, with uh, uh, well with in, in the person of Bill Laswell who uh, was very good at networking. So um, and, and very good at, at at pursuing people. So he would hang out in front of Eno's house because uh, I guess it was an open secret where he lived. Every day he'd just wait for him. And every time he'd come out, he'd be like, you got something for me? You got something for me? <laughs> Finally. That's wild. <laughs> Finally, you know, Eno invited him to play on this record, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which, of course, is legendary now. Yep, yep. Um, and what happened after that is that Eno um, decided that he wanted to make a pop band. Um, so... He started with Bill, with our drummer Fred, and with this guitarist Bob Quine, who played with Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Sure, Bob Quine. And legend. yeah, and I was very sad because I was sort of I, I wasn't included in the whole thing. Mm. Uh, and they recorded around town. Then they came to our studio in, in uh, Red Hook, Brooklyn, 
And uh, after a few days, Eno came up to this room because I'd go there every day too and I'd just hang out and paint and do or do whatever. And Eno came up to where I was and he was like, you know, I was wondering if you'd like to join us. And of course, that was the happiest day of my life. Of course. Eno was like my hero back then. And, you know, we started working together and, you know, he had these big plans of like making pop music and going all over the world, like playing soccer stadiums in Mm. like, you know, in in, in Indonesia and stuff like that, which back then no one had, no one was thinking like this. Right. And then all of a sudden my life in the bush of ghosts comes out and it gets lukewarm reviews and that was too much for him. It just, he snapped and he decided that he didn't want to make pop music anymore. He just wanted to make ambient records. And so we started on into this sort of like downward, like this death spiral um, that went on for a few months of him uh, just doing these meandering recordings every day that just it didn't. And I remember him at the end of each day going like, well, I guess that didn't work out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, oh, you know, yeah, the last day that we were there was like, a, I, I can't even describe to you how, how bizarre the whole thing was. But somehow from that session, he kind of called um, a few bits huh. and you know I th- we thought that we, that he was going to continue on I think he, he just took the tapes and left and we didn't hear about it for a few you know like I guess the better part of a year maybe less and all of a sudden um, we, we were informed that he was releasing another record and that in fact he was going to use that some of it turned out being that one track was going to be from the sessions that we'd done. Huh. And I remember when I first heard it, I was like, what is this? Because I, I was listening to it like, I don't hear what I did anywhere. Right. There. But as I, when I listened closer, I realized that he'd slowed the tape down, that it was, um, I don't remember if we were, I guess we were probably recording at 30 eps, and I think he must have slowed it down to 16, huh. or if we were at 16, he went to seven and a half. Um, and... Um, it just it creates this very sort of like this very dreamlike effect, yeah. and you know obviously I was thrilled beyond belief. Here I am, and you know Brian Eno record, <laughs> right, and an ambient record no less. So yeah, that was always that was always something I was very proud of. Good for you, man! Wow. Uh, well, this I I have a Bad feeling for we've twenty just, year old kid. No kidding, <laughs> that's what I keep thinking. I mean, between Herbie Hancock and Brian Eno, and these are the first things out of the gate. They are known yeah. to Hendrix. You know, these are the first things out of the gate starting in your career that you get to work with. And you're you've got to be like early 20s. That's just mind blowing to me. It's mind blowing to me, too. I've been very I've been very fortunate. Yeah, you sure have. Well, uh, I'm sure that we've scratched the surface. But thank you, Michael, for talking with me. It's my pleasure, man. There you have it. Michael Beinhorn. Do you believe everything that guy has done? So many different genres. So much big, huge, like I said, landmark albums of the last 30, 35 years. Amazing amazing stuff. Um, By the way, I forgot to mention this. I think I have this right. He is, I think, the only producer to have produced two albums that debuted in the top 10 in the same week. Mechanical Animals debuted at number one, and Celebrity Skin debuted at number nine in the same week. And I think he was nominated for producer of the year probably for accomplishments like that anyway amazing stuff and i have to say a huge thanks to our listener jed bodwin for putting me in contact 
with Mike Cubulos, who works with Michael to make this interview happen. Thank you, all three of you, for doing this with me. Um, by the way, I want to close it out with my favorite Chili Pepper song, Behind the Sun. We didn't talk as much about the first album he did with them, Uplift Mofo Party Plan, but this song is on that album. This is by far my favorite Chili Pepper song. Now, next week, we are talking to somebody. I've actually had a couple of requests for this guy. He was a member of a group, but I guess they were mostly a duo. It was primarily run by, you know, the leaders were these two guys, but they were one-hit wonders in the 80s. Uh, a beautiful song that is not necessarily indicative of the rest of their stuff. And then they broke up. He went a completely different direction with his solo career for a while. And then uh, kind of lost the plot. Uh, he's still working in music now, although in a very different direction. And uh, I think you'll like this conversation. It's a good one. Also, we are going to have bonus episodes, I think, the rest of this month. The next three weeks. And our bonus episode this week will either be, well, I'll just tell you. It's either going to be a deep dive or I am interviewing somebody who worked very closely with Michael Jackson. And uh, we're going to talk all about that, as well as the new documentary that just came out. So depending on how these things go, one will be this week and one will be next week, most likely. Okay? So come back for that. Huge thanks to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for everything that you do and putting this together and being my partner. Thanks, buddy. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And we put out new episodes every Tuesday for the rest of this month. You're going to get a lot of bonus material, too. Anyway, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you later.